Uh, today we're looking at three things. We're looking at confusion, we're looking at commendation, because John, John is highly commended by Jesus. And then we're actually looking at clarity, clarification of the mission. Uh, and hopefully as we do that, uh, we'll get to hear about the Christian Union a little bit more. Uh, so open up your Bible, if you've got, it'd be great to have it in front of you, to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 3. As you're doing that, I'll give you a little bit of context. Uh, back in chapter 3, uh, that first Bible reading we had, you would have noticed that we met John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, we met back there, was a preacher. And John's message, his preaching, was very simple. His message was, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is coming, so turn from your sin, turn from your wrongdoing or your your ignoring of God, turn from that and turn back to God. That was John's message. And John, you see there, he spoke of coming judgment if people did not do so. If people did not repent, John spoke of coming judgment. And in chapter 11, in our passage today where we meet John, we see that John is actually in prison. John's been locked up. And he hasn't been locked up for being immoral or anything like that. Actually, in Matthew chapter 14, we find out that John has been thrown in prison because he confronted the governor of the day, Governor Herod, and he told him to repent. Now, the story is, and you can look at it later in Matthew 14, that the governor of the day, Governor Herod, had taken his brother's wife to be his wife. So he, he'd taken his sister-in-law to be his own wife. You can kind of imagine the Christmas party conversation, can't you? Uh, and John the Baptist confronted him on that. He said, Herod, this is immoral. You need to repent of that sin. Herod didn't like hearing that. And so he threw John in prison. That's why John's in prison, because he was a preacher, a preacher of repentance. We don't know how long John was in prison, but what we do know from verse 2 there of chapter 11 is that while John's been in prison, he's actually been hearing a lot of things about Jesus, about what Jesus has been doing. Uh, He's most likely heard about Jesus' great teaching, what you read in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you would have heard about that. Most likely he's heard about Jesus' miracles, what you read of in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, the great healings of Jesus. He would have heard about the the trainee mission in chapter 10 of Matthew where Jesus has sent people out to to teach and and to, to do miracles as well. John would have been hearing all this, the miracles, the teaching, the training. And it's interesting, because when he hears that, he's confused. He's confused. And so in verse 3, you see there, he sends his disciples, his followers, to ask Jesus a question. And you see the question there in verse 3. The question is this. John says, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the promised one, Jesus? That's what John's asking. Are you, are you the one who, who God will send, the Messiah? 
The one who will overcome the Satan, sin, death, suffering. Are you that one who's going to bring God's kingdom? John's confused, do you see? He's not sure if Jesus really is the one. And so you've got to ask the question, why? Why is John confused? Well, I actually think if you go back to chapter 3 and you remember what John was preaching back there, you actually get a bit of an idea. See, John had expectations of the Messiah, very strong expectations of the Messiah. And when John sees what Jesus is doing, he sees that they don't seem to be lining up. So maybe just flick back in your Bible to chapter 3, and I'll just read out verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3, John says this, he says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than me, his sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in verse 12, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John, do you see? John expected that when the Messiah would come, he would come in the power of the Holy Spirit and with sweeping judgment. That he would come in judgment. And what does John see of Jesus? Well, he sees him kind of sitting on the side of a mountain preaching nice sermons, right? He sees Jesus uh, healing people, making the blind see, the lame walk. He sees him training people. He sees Jesus getting fame and a following. And so he's confused. Where's the fire? Where's the winnowing judgment? John would have been thinking. John's confused. And so he sends his disciples to say, are you really the Christ? Are you really the one, Jesus? And have a look there in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 11 at what Jesus says. Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Do you see what Jesus tells John? Jesus tells John all about the blessings of the kingdom. He tells him about the good deeds and about the good news that he has brought. I don't know if you've ever kind of tried to imagine what it would have been like when Jesus walked on this earth, when he healed people simply by speaking or touching them. When he made the the lame man walk and he just danced out of that place. It would have been incredible, wouldn't it? Jesus had a massive following in his day. And it seems to me what what is really fascinating about verses 4 and 5 here in Matthew 11, about these words that Jesus uses to describe himself, these words are really carefully chosen by Jesus. Because these words are almost direct quotations from two different Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, about the one who would come. And what Jesus has done with these words is he's chosen to include the blessings 
of the Messiah, of those prophecies, and completely leave out the judgments, the words of judgment. I'll just show you one. In Isaiah chapter 35, what Drew read right at the beginning, Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, this is the prophecy. It says this, Say to those who are anxious, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer. Did you pick up the bit that Jesus quoted? He quoted the blessing part, didn't he? And he completely left out the judgment part. It's the same with Isaiah 61. And you've got to think, well, what was John expecting? John was expecting the judgment, wasn't he? John was expecting that Jesus would come with the recompense of God. But he doesn't. And so that's why John's confused. And so it seems to me that what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying, John, look, I am the Messiah. Do you see these words? I'm the one who has brought the blessings of the kingdom. The lame walk, the blind see, good news is preached. I bring the blessings of But the time of judgment, John, is not yet. The time of judgment is not yet. Now is the time for blessing, Jesus is saying. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time that the nations can come and receive that salvation. Because by my coming, Jesus is saying, judgment has been delayed. See what what Jesus is doing? Jesus is clearing up John's confusion. John, it seems to me, had slightly wrong expectations of the Messiah. And without correction, it seems that maybe John would have gone looking somewhere else. I mean, did you see verse 6 there of chapter 11? Verse 6, Jesus says to him, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, John... Don't let this confusion offend you. Don't let it make you turn away from me. You've started well, John. See who I am. Don't give up on me. One of the lessons I think this actually teaches us today is that false or slightly misguided expectations of God are extremely dangerous. Misguided understandings can lead to discouragement, And they can even lead to people walking away from Jesus. Sometimes I see this at uni. People have certain expectations of God and they don't come true. A pretty extreme example of that was a couple of years ago, one of the student's mums was dying of cancer. She had pretty progressed uh, cancer and some people told her that 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 some people told her that God had told them that that cancer would be healed by prayer. That's what they said. And so they stopped going to the chemo. They stopped the medical assistance. They had prayer nights, they had fasting, and eventually the mum died. And about a week later, that girl came to me and her whole framework of faith was shattered. She didn't know what to believe. Through tears, she told me, Steve, God 
said this wouldn't happen. And I very gently, very carefully had to tell her, actually, no, God hasn't lied. But people have given you wrong expectations of what God has promised to do. Now, I'm not against praying for healing by any means. But to say that it's been guaranteed, well, that was a wrong expectation. By God's grace, that girl is going well. She's still trusting Jesus, but that was an incredibly difficult time because she had wrong expectations. So one of the things that we at the CU want to do well is actually show people how to read the Bible so that they know God and so that they can know what he promises, know what they can expect of him. Because if people have wrong expectations then they'll be believing false promises and it could lead to them walking away. Friends, we know that the Bible is where God clearly speaks and reveals himself. And so at the CU, that's what we seek to do. We seek to teach people how to read the Bible well, how to understand it for themselves so that they can know our God and how to live for him. We want to clear up that confusion But secondly, in this passage, though John had some confusion, we actually notice here that Jesus actually commends him extremely highly. I don't know if you picked that up in verse 11. See verse 11 there? Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise, don't you reckon? I mean, among those born of women, that I would say that's pretty much most of us here in this room. But among those born of women, Jesus says, John is the greatest. Which means up until that period of time, Jesus is saying John is the greatest person who has ever lived. It's pretty high praise. So I think you've got to ask the question, well, Why? Why does Jesus say this? Why is is John so great? Well, perhaps we could say maybe it's because of his Bible knowledge or, or his preaching. But we've just kind of seen that he did have a little bit of confusion. Perhaps it was because of what we read about him in verses 7 to 9 here, that he wasn't like a reed shaken in the wind. You know, you ever seen a, a reed on a, on a dam? It just gets blown back and forth. Jesus is saying, John wasn't like that. He didn't just bend to people's desires and whims. No, he stood firm. Is that it? Well, no, I actually think verse 10 is the key to understanding verse 11. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So do you see why Jesus says John was great? It was actually because in the whole sweep of God's plan for Jesus to be king, John was the one who came and prepared the way. John was the one who, we read in Matthew chapter 3, was the one who introduced Jesus to the world. In John's Gospel, you might remember, uh, when John first sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John points Jesus out 
to the world. He introduces him to the world. That's why John's great. Jesus is saying, John is great because he introduced me. Now suppose for a moment I got up here and I said, friends, I've got an announcement for you. Drew Kerr is the greatest person who has ever lived because he introduced me. You'd think I was crazy, right? <laughs> That's crazy. So why can, Je- why can John and Jesus get away with this? Well, it seems to me it's actually because if you're introduced to Jesus, you're actually introduced to life itself. If you're introduced to Jesus, you're introduced to the one who can give you salvation, who can give you hope, who can give you forgiveness, who can give you peace. This is why the Apostle Paul once said, I consider all things as worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus as my Lord. At the moment, at the CU, we're preaching uh, through segments of John's Gospel. And one of the key verses that we keep coming back to is John chapter 20 and verse 31, where John tells us why he wrote his whole biography of Jesus. In that verse, it says, These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was great, do you see? Because he got the job of introducing life into a dying world. That's why John was great. But let me ask you, did you notice the second half of verse 11? The second half of verse 11 says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you get that? The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If you're a Christian here today, then you're in the kingdom, right? Because to be a Christian is to be someone who has Jesus as your king. So even if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, then you are greater than John. You're greater than the one who was greater than everyone who came before him. Why does Jesus say this? What does he mean by this? Well, I believe Jesus says, you're least in the kingdom, you're greater than him because today this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, we actually have a greater clarity of who Jesus is than John ever could. We actually know Jesus and know his message far more than John ever did. So when we introduce people to Jesus we are introducing them to a far greater Jesus than John ever could. See, think about it. This is Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 14, John will die. He loses his head. John never lives to see that the Messiah is the one who goes to the cross and is judged in our place. John never lives to see that the Messiah, Jesus, is the one who rises from the dead and defeats Satan, sin and death. John never lives to see that he ascends back to heaven and sends his spirit who sends his good news into the world so the nations can be saved. John never lived to see that. 
John never knew the Messiah in such a way. But we do. We have a clarity, do you see, on who Jesus is and what his mission is. And we have a great privilege of being able to introduce people to this great Jesus. What this means, I think, surely for us, friends, is that it is a great privilege to know the Jesus that we do, to know forgiveness, to know hope, to know its assurance. But it is an even greater privilege to be able to do this work that we call evangelism, that we can introduce people to Jesus with such clarity and with such hope. So friends, can I ask you, if you're a Christian, how are you going with this great privilege? How are you going at being a part of Jesus' mission of seeing the lost saved? Are you praying along those lines? I know many of you do. Are you seeking to share this good news with those who don't yet know it? At the CU, we, um, we're not a church on campus. And we see ourselves as the missionary arm of the church. We're on campus because many of you will never be on that campus and, and many of you will never be able to share Jesus in that place. But many of you pray for us. Many of you support us. And we're so thankful for that. We're not just a Christian club, do you see? We're actually a Christian group that is for the non-Christians on our campus. Everything we run, we're trying to invite people in so that they can hear the good news of Jesus, so that they can find life and have it in his name. At the moment on Fridays, I've got the great privilege of sitting down with a young man who hardly knows anything about Jesus at all. He's not a Christian yet. But every Friday we sit down for about an hour and a half and we read through a passage in Luke's Gospel. Last week we read about the paralytic man who was lowered down through the roof and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Then he says, take your mountain walk. That guy was struck by the fact that Jesus could forgive sins and he was confused by what that means and we're able to talk about that. It is a great privilege to be able to have those conversations. So please pray for that young man. It's not always an easy work. Uh, Like Matt said, there's a bit of apathy. There's also hostility at times. It's interesting there, you see in verse 12, quite quite an interesting verse, I think, there in verse 12. It says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. It's a bit of a tricky verse and, in fact, you might actually have a little number and a footnote down the bottom of your page and the footnote suggests that maybe that verse should read that from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom has been violently advancing and the violent take it by force. I take it, and a lot of commentators take it, that that's probably the better reading of the verse. And what essentially it means is this, is that ever since Jesus came and began his ministry, his kingdom has been advancing. And it's been transforming people's lives. People have been coming into it and they've been finding life 
now and for eternity. They've become finding freedom from sin and captivity. But at the same time, people have been fighting tooth and nail to try and stop it and try and stop its advance. They've been persecuting it. And we know this from the worldwide church. Occasionally we see this at uni. Uh, there's some people who, um, I guess, just don't want us on campus. Uh, there's been times when I've had some formal complaints made against me for things that I've just kind of said pretty clear from the scriptures. There is some hostility, and it could get worse. But God's word, helpfully, actually says that's to be expected. It's to be expected that people won't like this. But it's also to be expected that the kingdom will advance greatly, that people will be saved, that people's lives will be transformed. And we're seeing that as well. So, friends, I just want to close by saying thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support, and please keep praying for us. Please keep praying that God's good news of Jesus will go out on that campus. Pray that the spirit of apathy will be lifted and that people will come to have life in Jesus' name. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your great news of Jesus, our Saviour. Father, we thank you that we have a great clarity over the, what the gospel is, that Jesus has died for our sins, that he's risen for our hope, and that he's coming back again. And Father, I pray that you would give us many people to speak this good news to this year on campus. Father, I pray that for each one of us that we would have a clarity over this mission and that you would be giving us opportunities to share this good news. And Father, we pray that by your spirit you will grow your church here in Bendigo and throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.